and welcome to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast on behalf of the New Books Network. I'm Ben Goldfarb, your host. This month, we'll be speaking with John Waldman about his new book, Running Silver, Restoring Atlantic Rivers and Their Great Fish Migrations. In Running Silver, Waldman chronicles the tragic collapse of migratory fish like sturgeon, salmon, and eels in East Coast rivers and describes how these species have faded in cultural importance. Yet he ends on a hopeful note with a roadmap to recovering these fish and restoring our rivers. This is a book that remembers what we've lost and explains how we can return migratory fish to our waters and our lives. So, without further ado, please welcome to our program John Waldman, author of Running Silver. John, I thought you might begin by telling us a little about yourself. Well, I'm a professor of biology at Queens College uh, currently, and I grew up in the Bronx in what I would sometimes call a uh, a huck-thin childhood in a Tom Sawyer world, uh, living close to the water in the Bronx, which is not the place you think of when you think of uh, marine biology. But uh, I played on the shores of the the Bronx and Pelham Bay Park and became smitten by the aquatic world. And uh, for my schooling, I stayed local. I finished my PhD at the City University of New York in a program in conjunction with the Museum of Natural History, and was hired by the Hudson River Foundation for Science and Environmental Research to spend 20 years there. And while I was there, I, I saw New York Harbor sort of changing before my eyes and felt compelled to, to write a book, which was titled Heartbeats of the Muck. And Heartbeats of the Muck, I wasn't trained as a historian, but Heartbeats of the Muck was very history-oriented, looking at the uh, trajectory of change in New York Harbor, which was tremendous in the environmental sense. And uh, it got me fascinated with the whole world of historical ecology. And I had also always been fascinated by rivers, even though I grew up in the Bronx near the saltwater. I spent a lot of time upstate on rivers. And I've been very concerned about the fate of our migratory fish, the fish that go between freshwater and saltwater. And um, there had been some treatments of what had happened to these fish at a single species level, like John McPhee's wonderful wonderful book, The Founding Fish, and uh, James Prosek's book on eels. But I felt like there was a story to be told for the entire suite holistically. And um, so I I dove into the historical ecology of these fish. And uh, these fish are really rather amazing. these are called diatomous fish, just a little ichthyology 101. Uh, these are fish that are either born in salt water and go to fresh water or vice versa. The fish most people think of that, uh, that do this are the anatomous fish that are fish like salmon that spawn in a river and go to sea and then return. The opposite is catagymous, which are eels, which are born in the ocean and spend their lives in fresh water and then go back to salt water. So the only compose about uh, less than 1% of the world's fishes, but some of them are among the most iconic species in the world, like salmon and sturgeon and shad and striped bass. And uh, they have declined dramatically, for the most part, uh, along the Atlantic coast. And, and this is what I, uh, the story I told in Running Silver. Yeah. So maybe you can paint us a picture of what these great mm-hmm. fish migrations once looked like in terms of species and abundance before the arrival of Europeans to North America. Yes, uh, well, running silver is a term that was sometimes used for a river that suddenly looks silver with all the bodies of these bright fish that are emerging from the ocean and driving up river. You know, it was quite a spectacle. And uh, there are you know, other wonderful descriptions of uh, people being blown away by the sheer abundance. Another term you sometimes see is 
the uh, the idea that uh, people could walk dry shot across their backs because they, they were so thick you wouldn't get your feet wet. Wow. And of course, it's, it's embellished, but it was, you know, echo of, of a reality. And uh, in the book, I collected some of these wonderful quotes. And, and there's one quote I just want to read briefly that is my absolute favorite that just gives you a sense of the reaction yeah. of uh, colonists to what they saw. This was by William Byrd in the 1700s, and he was writing about um, the alewives. It's like a very small shad. And he wrote, uh, when they spawn, all streams and waters are completely filled with them. And one might believe, when he sees such terrible amounts of them, that there was as great a supply of herring as there is water. In a word, it is unbelievable, indeed indescribable, as also incomprehensible what quantities found there. One must behold oneself. And I describe that as a, a, a festival of superlatives. But this was not <laughs> totally out of the, uh, the ordinary for that time period, because you have to realize that these were people of European origin that were coming from a continent that had been um, heavily fished for hundreds and hundreds of years and had major habitat change and pollution, and they were no longer accustomed to almost pristine abundances. You know, we had Native Americans, of course, who were uh, certainly fishing these species, but they existed in, in low numbers, these, these populations, and uh, they had not been driven down yet. So, the the European colonists were simply blown away by what they saw, and it was funny how unprepared the Europeans were. You know, the the Native Americans made use of these fish. They they caught them in myriad ways, from spearing uh, with lights at night on canoes and all kinds of elaborate weirs and uh, and nets and and hooks made from bone. And they even used eel uh, grease in their hair to uh, to sort of smooth it out. The colonists came here really unprepared for fishing. They, they brought no fishing gear with them. And Captain John Smith has a passage where he writes about these hungry colonists going out and trying to catch fish in Chesapeake Bay with frying pans. And he admits in the end that frying pans are not a very good fishing device. <laughs> who, would have, who would have guessed? Um, hmm. So, you know, one of the things that you're, you're highlighting now is the, is the fact that most people are, are probably familiar with, you know, the, the big ticket species like salmon and sturgeon and, and striped bass, as you say. But, but one of the great things about your book is that it shines a light on the importance of, of eels and, you know, another less heralded species like, like sea lampreys, uh, you know, which are now maligned by many anglers. Uh, you know, I was wondering if you, if you could talk about some of the, some of the, the, less, the less renowned species like, like lampreys. But what is a lamprey exactly and, and what makes it worthy of, of attention in your book? You know, lampreys are, are really a fascinating fish. They're, they're extremely primitive, you know, in the evolutionary line of fish. They they don't have any bone, and they, they don't really have jaws. What they have is a sucking disc, and they're, they're parasites. They will attach themselves to other fish and then suck out uh, bodily fluids and often kill the host fish. And uh, they migrate in the spring up rivers, and uh, unlike most of these anadromous fish, they don't home. They don't come back to the river they were spawned in. They, they simply use the uh, next or most adjacent suitable river because when they go out to sea, they don't maintain a uh, coherent circuit of migration. They go on one host and then another, and any single population is dragged all over the ocean. So they're, they're really different from other anadromous fish in, in this lack of homing. But they, uh, they're reviled in the Great Lakes because they invaded the Great Lakes, at least the four upper Great Lakes, uh, in, in, in recent historical times and, and decimated uh, lake trout populations. And uh, there's been war against them in the Great Lakes and Lake Champlain ever since. So, so in the Great Lakes, they're, they're public enemy number one. Along the East Coast, their numbers declined, but they were never really very popular here. So they just 
or you know, as a food and never really reviled either because they weren't that numerous. So they just kind of existed, you know, under the radar screen. And then in Europe, they've been consumed and, and, and treated as a delicacy for a very long time. So it's interesting that one species can have three such different perceptions concerning them. They also are remarkable in that they have one of the greatest uh, altitudinal ranges on Earth. They mm. will sometimes swim uh, into headwaters of the Great Lakes and be hundreds and hundreds of feet above sea level, uh, but they also occur in the deep ocean. And uh, I'm not sure there's any species on the planet that has a greater range um, in, in elevation. So they, they are an interesting species. And, and they're one of, of several other species that don't get a lot of respect. Uh, you know, as I said, the salmon and shad and sturgeon are iconic, but we have things like alewives and blueback herring that look like small shad that are not uh, as famous, but they are major, major uh, bait fish species. And there's a lot of concern these days about the, uh, the balance, the ecological balance in the oceans and whether we are fishing down our, our prey species too much. And uh, because of these runs of these alewives and blueback herring have diminished so much, they may be hurting the balance in the, in the open ocean. So they may not be the greatest food fishes or sport fishes, but they, they play a major ecological role. Hmm. So what about what about the shad? I mean, I, I mean, I feel like you know, of course, they 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 are iconic. They have been written about. McPhee called them the founding fish, but they're but they're so important here. It seems like we we have to mention the shad. I mean, maybe you could describe, uh, you know, these early shad runs and talk about their your their, their importance both to native people and to and to the Europeans when they did arrive. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sh- shad were. Shatter to me the exemplary East Coast anatomist species because they, they really dominated uh, rivers in the spring. They're large. They reach up to 10 or 12 pounds, and they came in in, in absolutely extraordinary numbers. Uh, they also were very predictable. Um, people knew what time they would show up in rivers, and this is one of the great um, uh, values of anatomist fish is that you know if you were looking for these fish in the open ocean, you can never find them. But based on experience, you know that in any given river around a certain date, they're just going to come marching up towards your nets. And that provides a great opportunity for sustenance, but it also provides great vulnerability to the fish. So shad were uh, often viewed as a great symbol of spring to the colonists, and they would have shad festivals up and down the coast, and there was great excitement about the first shad row, their eggs, which are considered a delicacy, reaching major markets like New York and Philadelphia. And uh, even along the Hudson here, I, I've been to a shad bake where they use a traditional method of taking shad fillets, which uh, require boning. And boning is a, a lost art because shad have incredible numbers of bones, and only a few people know how to do this anymore. Hmm. But you take these bone fillets and you you nail them with bacon strips to oak boards, and then hold them against a, uh, a fire and uh, and roast them slowly. And their Latin name, Olosus hapidissima, means most delicious of herrings, and they actually are, are a fabulous food source, so um, they, they are delicious. So uh, shad have played a major role in, in the um, history of fisheries on the East Coast. They were a tremendous food source for the early colonists, and they have gone down uh, dramatically in the case of the Hudson. Uh, in, in 1889, we had peak landings of 4 million pounds. These are 4 million pounds harvested from the river. You know, who knows how much was left behind. 
over the last several years, the runs have become so small, so small that there is absolutely no harvest allowed at all, either recreationally or commercially. And there are few signs that they're actually recovering at all. So this is not that atypical for rivers along the East Coast. There are other rivers, too, that have had uh, incredible declines in the order of uh, 95 or 98 percent from peak, peak runs. Right. So in the, in the Hudson, clearly the problem was, was overfishing. But on, on most rivers, it sounded like the real issue was, was the dams that started popping up uh, you know, as Europeans settled and the population increased. I mean, what, what, what explained the, the sort of the explosion of dam construction? Why did these, why did these dams seem like a good idea you know, in, the, in the 18th and 19th centuries? Well, for the early colonists, the dams were the alternative source of power from animal power. You know, there was no electricity. So uh, in order to grind wheat and other grains, uh, many, many mill dams were, were built on, on smaller uh, streams and, and, and creeks in, along the East Coast. And, uh, and that blocked uh, a lot of the uh, connect, connectivity you know, among these systems. And then later on, as the Industrial Revolution geared up, uh, there was a need for power to, to drive uh, the mills. And that's when we saw more and more main stem dams being built. And the main stem dams are worse than the mill dams because the mill dams were often on the little tributaries, but the main stem dams would block the movements of these fish often very early on as they entered the rivers. So... Uh, we, we have these tremendous blockages that, in some cases, allowed some spawning below the dams, and in some cases, uh, prohibited any spawning below the dams, and, and uh, it's just annihilated uh, many species that needed to get upriver. Right. And, and dams were only one of the perturbations. Uh, you know, there was, for a long time, there was sort of a mantra about uh, why these fish declined. It was dams, overfishing, and pollution in that order. And uh, overfishing is is probably relatively easily um, reversed just through regulatory changes, and, and species can rebound quickly. And that's this happened with striped bass. Striped bass crashed in the Chesapeake Bay in the 1980s, and a um, drastic reduction in fishing allowed them to come back. Pollution is is not as bad as it might seem because many fish can tolerate pollution. What they can't po- tolerate is low oxygen levels. So. Um, in situations where you had human sewage overwhelming a system, driving oxygen low, you often had a, uh, a loss of these runs. But uh, just pure chemical contamination was not that big an issue, in my opinion. But since those uh, the days of the, of the mantra, the big three, I think there's increasing recognition that non-native species are playing a role. You know, one of the reasons why we think these fish make these costly migrations, where they have to swim hundreds of miles from the, from oceans up into rivers against the current and make osmotic changes from, from salt water to fresh water within their bodies is that headwaters are good places to leave eggs and young because there's few predators there. And in fact, we've introduced so many non-native species along the Atlantic coast so that you know the Hudson, which only had a few predatory species early on, now has largemouth bass and, and, and smallmouth bass and, and various pikes and pickerels that weren't there and many other species. Uh, I, I think this is a uh, kind of an unseen factor that uh, is probably more prominent than we think. Then there are things like power plants, which suck up water for cooling their systems and, and often entrain or impinge uh, literally 
hundreds of millions of eggs and larvae. And climate change is also now a, a recently noted factor. We're seeing changes in the distributions of some fish. Uh, smelt, which is a delicious little anatomous fish, used to run as far south as Delaware River. They ran into the Hudson until about uh, the year 2000, but they disappeared from there. And now they disappeared from Connecticut and are retreating northward in Massachusetts. So we're, we're seeing uh, species range shifts, and we're also seeing changes in the timing. You know, we, we know from experience when fish typically enter rivers, and they're entering many rivers now earlier and earlier, and then they have unseen ramifications for, uh, you know, the ecology of, of those systems and, and how the young then uh, survive within the rivers uh, because the timing is now drastically changed. So there's a, these fish face quite a few uh, challenges. Yeah, just going back to the the, the non-native species issue for one for one second. You know, one of the sure. one of the invasives that you mention in the book is is, is zebra mussels in the Hudson. Um, what's the what's the story there exactly? Because I know that, I know there have been some changes in the in the story too over time. Yeah, zebra mussels entered the Hudson in the uh, I think it was the early in the 1990s and. Uh, Zebra mussels are native to Europe and Asia, and they were taken uh, by accident in ballast water ships that, that released their larvae in uh, the Great Lakes. And since then, they spread over much of, of the U.S., and they came to the Hudson and exploded. And one year, there were none there, and next year, there were $550 billion, uh, as an estimate. Uh. And they, fil- they filtered the water column of the river once a day and, and reduced phytoplankton by as much as 85% in the beginning, which had, of course, you know, this was a big monkey wrench uh, in the ecology of the system. And it was shown very nicely that it affected the relative um, abundances of the fish community so that the zebra mussels made the water clearer, which made the weed beds expand, which then favored the weed bed species like sunfish and, and largemouth bass, but it, it hurt the species that live in the open water column as larvae like shad and, and striped bass. So this, this changed the ecology of the river, and uh, these things are here to stay. There has been a change over time. It seems like the mussels are not doing as well, and it may be that when they first enter a system, the species that encounter them are naive to them and don't, haven't or don't have the ability to immediately build them into their life cycle. But since then, species like short-nosed sturgeon and, and freshwater drum and various sunfish and ducks have been found to be eating these mussels more and more. Hmm. And it may be that we're, we're reaching more of a balance, but, but there's no doubt that they change the system dramatically and, and probably hurt our uh, anadromous fish species. Right. Hmm. There, you know, there, are, there are a few stories you tell in the book that, that to me, are really illustrative of, of the challenges of protecting and restoring these species. And I, I wonder if you could talk briefly about what's going on with, with American eels today, because the, the eels seems like a great illustration of how the challenges of regulating fisheries have changed and how the regulations themselves have failed to catch up. So what's, what's happening with, with American eels? There's no doubt that eels have really, really declined dramatically along the East Coast. Uh, our eel population is different from our anatomous fish populations because the anatomous fish populations, for the most part, are individual to each river. So that the Hudson has its own shad population, the Savannah River has its own striped bass population, and so on. Uh, eels are born in the Sargasso Sea out in the open ocean and drift as larvae with the Gulf Stream and then sort of just break off the Gulf Stream and enter rivers. So there is no 
you know, Kennebec River or Connecticut River population, they're all part of the same general mix of this, this Atlantic Ocean population. So when they decline in one place, they decline everywhere because they're all getting sort of a random distribution from this, this large uh, single ocean population. And uh, numbers are declining everywhere, um, partly because dams have blocked their access to freshwater habitat, partly because of overfishing uh, of the adults for, or the, the sub-adults for, for bait, and, and potentially for climate change uh, factors in the open ocean. But one fishery that's interesting right now is that there's a, a fishery for the little elvers, the baby, what they call glass eels that haven't transformed to, to dark eels yet, that's open in Maine and uh, and a little bit in South Carolina. And the Maine fishery is a little bit, in my opinion, um, out of control. They're, the people are spending day and night fishing for these things and getting hundreds and hundreds of dollars per pound. And uh, it's not, and, and the reason why they, they cost so much is that there's demand for them in, in Asian countries, particularly Japan, and they're able to get prices that are just extraordinary. And uh, it, it's probably hurting uh, the overall population, even though uh, it's being fished in Maine. It is again, this is a single population, and uh, it, it's quite controversial. Yeah. Hmm. So to, to sum it all up, we've got we've got overfishing, we've got dams, we've got we've got fish getting trapped in power plant cooling systems, invasive species, climate change. Obviously, the deck is really stacked against against diadromous fish, and I'm I'm wondering if you can sort of encapsulate just. How, how much the runs have changed, I guess, in the last 500 years? How dramatically, um, you know, ha, ha, have they been reduced? How, how much have we lost? Well, again, uh, I did an analysis with a colleague where we, we found that looking at the best data we could find for the North Atlantic, both Europe and, and uh, North America, that many populations had declined 95 to 98% from their, their peaks. Wow. which is a tremendous drop. But just to give you uh, more examples, I mentioned the, the shad example in the Hudson. The Susquehanna River was the major shad river on the East Coast. It was like a, a shad Shangri-La. And uh, when the colonists first came here, shad used to migrate through Chesapeake Bay up the Susquehanna all the way to the center of New York State at Otsego Lake. And uh, it's about a 500-mile trip within the river. And uh, John Fenimore Cooper wrote about these, these vast shoals of, of this herring-like fish that entered Otsego Lake, and it actually helped save starving colonists in that region early on. So this was in a river that just had you know, innumerable numbers of shad coming in. And uh, over time, oh, and, and, and when the fisheries were going strong, they, the, the schools of shad were so large, they sometimes produced a bow wave in front of them. People could see the, the water changing as, as, as the body of fish moved up. And there was one hall that's famous where they set this big net in the lower river and the wind changed and they couldn't get it in for a while. And then it filled with so many fish that it took three and a half days to land it. Wow. And it was an estimated 15 million shad and river herring taken in that one hole. It, it just took forever to get those fish out of the net. 15 million estimate for that one single hole. Later on, they built the Conowingo Dam at the mouth of the river. It's just 10 miles from the, uh, the actual mouth. So the next 490 miles of river is, is now shut off from shad until they built a, um, a fishway to allow them to pass. But the fishway hasn't worked well. So numbers have now declined to the point where the total run sizes are every year on the order of hundreds to a few thousand from a, from a system that produced 15 million in one haul. Mm. So another is, example is, is the um, there's one more that's worth mentioning I yeah, think and that's sure. the the Delaware River in the 
late 1800s, there was an international caviar craze, you know, kind of almost like the, the tulip craze in, in Holland. Uh, there was just worldwide excitement about caviar, and anywhere you could find sturgeon efficiently, they were fished and overfished. And the Delaware River was the preeminent sturgeon river along the Atlantic coast. And uh, in 1888, there were 6 million pounds of sturgeon pulled out of the Delaware River alone. And this went on for about a decade to the point where in the 1900s, you could not find a single sturgeon, and uh, Atlantic sturgeon, that is. And uh, it's only just recently that we are seeing any signs of a few fish spawning there. So uh, th- th- this fishery was so important to that region that one of the towns was named Caviar. And when <laughs> wow. the fish disappeared, they, re- they renamed it as Bayside. Uh, I think they were embarrassed. <laughs> so, I mean, so, so how, has the, how has the public reacted to the virtual disappearance of you know, what used to be one of our greatest resources? What's, what has the outcry been? been over the last hundred years? Yeah, I I think that the average citizen is not aware of what happened. I think there are people who were either serious anglers or conservationists who are aware and feel saddened by it, but feel like there's not that much that can be done. Uh, One of the uh, themes of the book was that I, I, I followed Thoreau's observations. Thoreau was, you know, an incredibly prescient uh, and perceptive observer, and uh, he had paddled the uh, Concord and Merrimack Rivers with his brother uh, during the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and published a book about it, you know, a week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers, and in it, he has many, many uh, sad but, but, but right on predictions about what will happen to these fish in the face of industrialization. And it's just interesting that he could see all this coming, and and, and yet nowadays, uh, looking back retrospectively, we barely noticed that it happened. And uh, this this brings up the subject of, or the, the new concept of shifting baselines, which is a term you often now see in conservation biology, in which, uh, well, which basically says that resource managers don't really attempt to bring back uh, populations to where they were, they try to hold the line to what they see, and typically it slips, and each generation there's more and more of the slipping, almost like a ratchet, and over time, we lose track of what was there, because we're, we're seeing what we see within each generation, and and, and the diminution that, that occurs to the next one, and, and, and there's just very little recognition of, of, of true abundances that go back far in time. And uh, th- this is what, uh, this is one of the driving forces for this new field of historical ecology that attempts to go back in time and, and, and just refresh our memories of, of what's been lost. And uh, the, the problem with this whole field is that quite often the information is not quantitative. And we live in a world now where science is typically done quantitatively. But uh, the person who proposed this shifting baselines theory, uh, Daniel Pauly, you know, mentioned an account he had heard from a relative of his about the abundance of tuna in some location. And, and he said this is as factual as, as you know, more recent fisheries data. It's just not quantitative. Right. Uh, so we go back to historical records, to, to diaries of, of early fishermen, to archaeological remains and so on. And, and we're, what we're finding is that you know, we lived in a world that was very different from what we see today. And, uh, and it's kind of sad. And I think one of the things that we've lost with um, our loss of these, these fish runs is a sense of spectacle. You know, I think you know, when, when, I, when I'm out with my, my children and we see 100 starlings fly by, we say, wow, a lot of birds. But you know, we had passenger pigeons uh, in the 1800s that flew in flocks that passed overhead like a 
atmospheric river for hours on end. Right. And and then we had movements of these fish in the rivers that were, you know, so oh it's barbing. We said the river ran silver. You know, we don't have access to the sort of spiritual renewal we would get from those kinds of spectacles anymore. And I think that's actually a, a rather sad thing. Yeah. Hmm. So so shifting baselines is 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 akin, or it's it's a maybe it's a predecessor to uh, a wonderful term that that you coined and and refer to in this book, which is which is eco social enemy. Um, and I, I wonder what is what does that term mean? Maybe you can explain what what you meant by by eco social enemy. Well, I I think that uh, the shifting baselines uh, paradigm is, is quite real. But the way it was defined, it was it was really connected to resource managers. And there's another term that I think applies more to the public, and that's the term of intergenerational amnesia, where the public basically loses the knowledge that their grandfathers, you know, used to eat shad routinely, and that it was a big part of their lives, or whatever species we're talking about. So my colleague Karen Lindbergh and I. Um, came up with this term that tried to unite those two, the sense that there's sort of a reciprocal spiral effect where the public loses loses track of what it lost, doesn't care as much, doesn't put as much resources into it. The resource manager tries to hold the line but doesn't have the resources. It slides further. The public then you know loses uh, more connection. And over time, you just have this, this spiral down to what – uh, brings us to another term that I like, which is out there in conservation biology. It's the, the notion of, of ghost species, hmm. the idea that there are species that have left holes in our ecology. And, you know, one example of that is the speed of the pronghorn antelope. You know, the pronghorn antelope is an incredibly fast runner out on the open plains of the U.S., but it has no need to be so fast anymore because it has no predators like that. But uh, in, in, in earlier times, in the Pleistocene, there were, there were you know, fierce lions and other species that, that could chase uh, these, these antelopes. And, and so, the, you know, they have this, this, this residue of this ability that's uh, based on species that are essentially ghosts. And I think that we have many species now that, that function as ghosts, um, in that they're so scarce that they no longer play an ecological role of, of any meaning, or that they absolutely are gone, and, and in that case, they're you know a true ghost. Hmm. So, how do we go about reversing these forces? How do we how do we correct intergenerational amnesia? How do we unshift our baselines? How do we make people care about fish that you know, if we're being honest, are, are no longer relevant to most people's lives? Well, I think the only hope is to make them aware again, and 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 that's again what historical ecology attempts to do. And uh, a lot of this information ends up in, in journal articles, but I think there's a, uh, a need for scientists and and, and uh, writers to take this to the general public and say, "Hey, guys, this 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 was this was pretty amazing. It's gone." Um, but it could be reversed with some some effort, and we should at least try. So this was the reason why I, I wrote this book. I felt like there was a story to be told here, but I also felt like I, I really wanted to help green smarter people to care more about this. So uh, yeah, I, I think getting the public behind this is is, is the key uh, initial task, and then there's a question of which tactics do you use. And uh, one of the things that I propose, in, in the end of my book, the last chapter focuses on, on 10 ideas for the future. And, and the one that I feel is most important that uh, I would like to see become something of a national movement is the idea that every dam should have an existential crisis. And what I mean by that is that, you know, we have 80 
200,000 dams over six feet in the U.S. alone, and who knows how many smaller ones. And many, many, many of them just exist through inertia. You know, you, you can't take a dam and go puff and blow it away uh, in a minute. You have to, um, and, you know, when I say they exist through inertia, they're not being used by industry anymore. They're just there because they are a big mass of, of concrete or earth or a combination, and it, it's no simple task to get rid of them. So you have to get um, the, the people who own the dam or the public behind, who has property on the ponds behind the dam, behind it. You have to find funding. You have to work with resource agencies to uh, do this in a way that's not ecologically harmful. You know, it, it's, it's no simple task. But I think that it's being done rather piecemeal now. You know, there, there are states that are really great leaders in this effort. I think along the East Coast, the standouts are Maine, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. And they don't seem to leave any opportunities uh, ignored these days. Uh, other states are doing very little. And um, it, it is kind of piecemeal. Sometimes it's grassroots-led. Sometimes it's, it's agency-led. But I would like to see there be just sort of a national scorecard for each dam where the the, the Pros and cons of, of having that dam continue to persist in the you know in the uh, in the echo of the industrial revolution are challenged and and many dams of course will be shown to still serve some useful purpose but many many of them also don't do so and, and cause um, what I consider sort of ecological havoc or, or harm and, and and should be challenged. Hmm. How how effective are dam removals? How quickly do they pay dividends in terms of restoring fish? Usually, very quickly. Uh, the 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 um, uh, the really major uh, effort on the East Coast was the removal of the Edwards Dam near Augusta, Maine, on the uh, Kennebec in 1999. Right. And um, when that happened, all, immediately salmon, sturgeon, shad, striped bass were seen to be going further upriver, and uh, all uh, there's there's signs of recovery in most of those species, and also. Uh, it provided access to a major tributary, the Sebastocook, uh, which was then recolonized by alewives, and, and that run went from zero to two million very quickly. So uh, the evidence is that uh, dam removals um, usually provide immediate and, and, and tangible benefits, sometimes very large benefits. It's not the only thing that could be done. Uh, one thing that has been done concerning dams, which has been, in my mind, a uh, rather halfway measure, is the installation of, of fishways. And fishways can either be fish ladders that are um, essentially chutes with baffles that slow the water down that will allow species to pass a dam by working their way through these chambers, or fish elevators, which are these devices that essentially draw fish into them at the face of a dam and then ride up the face of the dam and they, they hit the right floor and get off and swim into the reservoir. Uh, these sometimes work uh, somewhat effectively. They're very species selective. There are species like sturgeon and striped bass that would never use the fish ladder. There are species like shad where it sometimes works decently. And there are species like alewives which are pre-adapted to leaping up little little streams that like fish ladders and use them pretty, pretty uh, openly. So, uh, 
it's, it's kind of been a mixed bag. When you put a fishway on a dam, you, you, you think you've, you've, you've solved the problem, or at least the public does, but in, in reality, it, it is only a halfway measure. It's not nearly as effective as actually removing a dam. Right. I really, I really liked your idea, the, the dam existential crisis, the, the, the cost-benefit scorecard. I'm wondering, if you, were, if you were appointed fisheries czar and given the power to remove a single dam on the East Coast, which one would you take out and, and why? Well, the one that breaks my heart is the Conowingo Dam on the Susquehanna. Now, taking out the Conowingo would not <clears throat> be an easy thing, <clears throat> nor would it be uh, totally effective in isolation because there are three more dams that occur in rapid succession behind it. So in order to really open that system, you'd want to take all four down. But the Conowingo, as I said, you know, it stops migration effectively uh, 10 miles into a system where they used to penetrate 500 miles. And uh, the fish ladders and fish elevators in that system have not worked very well to date. So I would love to open up those dams. There's a uh, a real paradox there, though, in that um, Chesapeake Bay is, is terribly eutrophic, and a lot of that is coming from sediments washed from the watershed in Susquehanna, and these dams have served to trap a lot of that sediment. And uh, it's not clear that if you took those dams down, you wouldn't have a big problem in the estuary with uh, nutrient release. On the other hand, these dams are filling up with these sediments very quickly. Every 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 second, uh, something like 100 pounds of sediment comes into Chesapeake Bay from the Susquehanna. So, uh, and that's just what's not trapped behind those dams. So there's a problem with these dams filling up uh, with sediment. And, and one of the uh, untold stories about dams in the U.S. is that a lot of our dams are aging and are going to require replacement or repair at some point. You know, they occasionally break and cause damage. And, uh, you know, in a country that's not doing a great job on infrastructure repair, we're seeing a, uh, a scary situation evolve with uh, with dams in this country. So that's one more reason to take dams down where not required. Hmm. So in, in the case of the Catawingo Dam where you have this, this big buildup of sediment, how do you address that? Can you take it out one piece at a time or dredge it first or what do you do about that? Yeah, there, there are... They, they are trying to see if they can dredge it. Uh, it's going to be very expensive, and uh, one initial attempt did not work well. It quickly filled in again. Uh, so they are. It's been it's been looked at as sort of almost a, a time bomb um, in terms of the Chesapeake Bay because these these reservoirs will fill eventually, and when they do, uh, they look, they look no longer act as as reservoirs for water, and they're going to allow the rest of the sediments uh, that come in to uh, pass directly into uh, the bay. So uh, it's a very unfortunate situation. And, uh, you know, ideally, I'd love to see it go back to its original state where there are no dams there and the sediments washed out freely. But uh, that would be a major paradigm change in how we manage that part of the country. Right. Hmm. So the, the final chapter of your book is, is entitled Toward a New Stewardship. And you, you mentioned that you had you had 10 rules or, or guidelines toward restoring rivers, and, I, and one of which is the, is the damn existential crisis. And I was wondering if you could just briefly touch upon some of the other really important guidelines you lay out for restoring rivers and fish. Well, a few of them are, are for one thing, the uh, FERC or the Federal Regulatory uh, Energy Regulatory Commission licenses uh, fish ladders and fishways, and they kind of freeze them in time over decades because the uh, utility companies don't want any surprises, and, and it makes it very hard to adjust uh, these fish ladders. These fishways are almost a black art in getting them to work right, and uh, I'd like to see more flexibility in, in, in just 
uh, continuing to adjust them to get them to work as well as they can, even though I'd rather see the dam come down. Um, another one is to use more alternative sources of hydroelectric power. You know, there's a lot of water that's moved from place to place in tunnels uh, that could be used uh, to draw power from. And none of them are going to be, you know, the Hoover Dam in terms of output. But it, you know, I think the future for energy production in this country is 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 more uh, small sources. And I think we could be looking more at, at, at capturing um, water that's being used for uh, human purposes to produce power. I'd also like to see um, some rivers chosen to be what I consider ecological touchstone rivers as points of reference for the rest of our rivers. You know, we, we, we anoint rivers as heritage rivers based on their history, but I'd like to see almost the equivalent of marine protected areas for rivers where mm. uh, two or three of them are kind of left as wild as possible so that we have a, a basis for comparison and also the protection that occurs from having uh, those those populations uh, left alone. Uh, I think there's a need to recomplexify rivers. Um, one of the things I've seen in looking through the history of <clears throat> these fishery sources is that often a single population would have life history variants within a single population. In other words, you might have shad that came into a river that looked a little different in early in the spring and, and spawned somewhere else than the shad that came in later that looked a little different and, and had another location but spawning within the river. And by having multiple life history variants in a system, you buffer against uh, the system not being productive in any single year. And because we now force these fish often to spawn in one location under a dam or above a dam, uh, we've, we've lost that life history variation that produces, uh, that draws more production out of any single system. So I'd like to see not only systems opened up, but also more um, complexified uh, in the way the rivers used to look. There's very good evidence now that our notion of what a river looks like is not what it should be, and that you know we think rivers are sort of single deep channels uh, naturally, but there's evidence now that originally our rivers were much wider, shallower, and braided with all kinds of little islands and, and sandbars and, and, and snags of wood and that, you know, we had species that were adapted to those conditions that we may be forcing them to now live in other conditions. And one more point I want to make is that I think we need to get kids wet and educated. I think that uh, getting kids out into the local rivers is incredibly important. Every time I've taken kids out, school kids staining for fish, you know, just netting fish, wearing waders and pulling a net in the shallows, their eyes just light up. And, you know, the idea of the ecology river goes from a, you know, textbook notion to a real notion and they get all excited. And when you get kids excited, you also automatically get, get their parents excited. So you're able to actually um, draw interest from, from two generations at once. In conjunction with that, I would have school kids study their own local rivers and create um, kind of historical ecology analyses of what those rivers used to look like so that they themselves get a sense of what's been lost. I think that would be a great, you know, sort of annual task uh, for, for school kids who live near rivers of any size. Hmm. Yeah, I know that. I know that for me, going out on the on the Clearwater Sloop on the Hudson was a, a hugely form, formative experience um, in terms of, you know, seeing what was out there and, uh, you know, experiencing the local ecology a little bit. Great. So exactly, you, can, you can't have too many of those kinds of programs. Yeah. All right. So, so John, final question. Um, you know, like like most fish scientists, you are yourself a fisherman. Um, I would love to hear your your best fish story. <laughs> well, I have one that's sort of embarrassing, but I'll, okay. I'll tell it because they uh, and it involves a river, but not an fish. And um, I'm, I'm a fly fisherman 
among my other kinds of angling pursuits. And one day I was trout fishing on the Amalok River in uh, in New York, and it was a very warm, kind of slow day. I wasn't catching anything. And I, I came to this section of river where it, it bumped up against a suburban street. And uh, there was a little slack water area there, and I saw some sunfish there. And I, I just thought, well, just to have some action and fun, I cast my fly into the sunfish. And I caught one right away. And I realized that there was a gigantic dog standing behind me. Uh, <laughs> and I decided, for no reason that I could justify now, to swing the fish over to the dog while it was still hooked on my line to see if he would sniff it and if he'd show any interest. Well, the giant dog, without hesitating, swallowed the fish while oh, it was hooked on my line. <laughs> and I instinctively pulled back because I wanted to get it away from the dog. Well, the hook came out of the fish's mouth and snagged the dog in the lip. Oh, so here gosh. I was wearing my waders on the suburban street, hooked to a giant dog. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, okay, this, this dog could eat me in three bites. Uh, I'm just going to cut the line and, and let the owner uh, deal with this little tiny fly. The dog was showing no distress, so I, I felt uh, okay about doing that. And I just sort of slinked away. But I wrote about it uh, in an article I wrote for the New York Times years later, and uh, it actually got me installed into a, a book called The, Hit, the Fishing Hall of Shame, not Hall of Fame. <laughs> so I, I, it's a dubious distinction, but I, I am in the Fishing Hall of Shame because of this experience. Well, the dog, the dog is probably okay. It's the most, the most important I, thing. I think so. It was, it was just pricked, but uh, I wasn't about to dangle with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that sounds like a good decision. Well, John, I, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today and for helping to correct our intergenerational amnesia. Um, and it's been a really uh, enlightening conversation about a, a wonderful book. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Okay, that's our show for this month. I'm Ben Goldfarb on behalf of New Books and Environmental Studies and the New Books Network. Thanks again to John Waldman, author of Running Silver, for taking time to speak with us. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. See you next month.